We know that that's where people are going in rural areas like where I am. And so taking the message of hope and even taking therapists to those organizations is proving to be very helpful for those people that we're trying to reach. Welcome to This is Rural Health, a podcast from the California State Rural Health Association. The CSRHA is focused on ensuring that the needs and voices of rural Californians are expressed and heard, and is continually working toward improving the quality and length of life of rural Californians. This podcast brings together leaders in rural healthcare with policy advisors, community leaders, and other forward thinkers to gain a better understanding of what's happening across today's rural healthcare ecosystem. Each week, you'll hear the unique perspectives of industry and community leaders and how they're finding innovative solutions to the challenges of a rapidly changing and increasingly complex healthcare industry. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to This is Rural Health, the official podcast of the California State Rural Health Association. I'm your host, Scott Hertzberg, president of the CSRHA, and joining me today is Jeff Winton, founder and chairman of Rural Minds, a nonprofit working to provide mental health information and support services for rural America. Jeff, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you. Well, thank you very much, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Rural Minds is an organization that was founded almost two years ago now as a result of a family tragedy that happened on our family farm in upstate New York, where I'm speaking to you from. I'm from a long line of dairy farmers, and my 28-year-old nephew, Brooks, uh, worked on this farm and grew up on the family farm, which is nearby, and was evidently struggling with a number of issues, including some mental health issues, and we believe substance use disorder issues. And before the family was aware of what was happening, my nephew died by suicide. And when he died, it was a real wake-up call for not only my family, but for this small community of 500 people, which is predominantly an agricultural community. It became very painfully clear that mental illness was still highly stigmatized to the point where when my nephew died, we had family members and other community members who basically suggested that we not talk about what caused my nephew's death. We had people go as far as saying we should say that he died in a farming accident or that he died of a heart attack. And keep in mind, this was a very healthy, at least physically healthy, 28-year-old who had three-year-old twins at that point in time. So my mother, who was matriarch of our family in every sense of the word, and who had raised my nephew because of my brother, his father's issues, basically said, we're going to not only talk about it, but we're going to talk about it in detail, because this has been happening too long in this community, that people have been dying by suicide, people have been living with mental illness, but no one is willing to talk about it. So during his eulogy at his funeral, which I was honored to give, um, we did talk in detail about what led and caused my nephew's death. As much as we knew, keep in mind, this came as a real surprise to my family because we were not aware that he was struggling. 
And like most farm families, we were a very close family and thought we knew pretty much everything there was to know about everyone in the family. But because of the stigma that still exists in rural areas as it relates to depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, substance use disorder, we realized that my nephew was never comfortable talking to us or anyone else about it. And by the time we found out about his journey, it was too late. So that's what really caused the formation of Rural Minds. We talked to a number of other not-for-profit organizations that have existed for a long time who have been doing wonderful work in the mental health space. But it became very clear by their own admission that they were much more focused on people that lived in Los Angeles and New York City and Chicago or the suburbs of big urban cities. But they really knew very little about the 46 million people that live in rural areas of the United States. And they encouraged us to actually start an organization, which is now Rural Minds, that would solely focus on advocating for all the people that lived in rural areas like where I'm speaking to you from, and people that needed help, support, counsel, whatever their needs were regarding mental health and substance use disorder, and suicide ideation. Suicide, obviously, is a huge issue, but there are other areas that we focus on because not everyone is suicidal. Many people are living with various forms of mental illness that have not contemplated suicide. But suicide is unfortunately a huge problem in this country. As you may know, every 11 minutes, someone in this country dies by suicide. Every 11 minutes. So we realize that suicide is important, but there are many other parts of this therapeutic journey that we're all on that we felt needed to be addressed as well. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And that was about 10 years ago now, right? That's correct. It was technically almost 11 years ago. And it took us a while to really do the research and make sure that formation of a group was necessary. We didn't want to duplicate efforts. So after we realized that there was a need we launched the organization. But yes, my nephew died now almost 11 years ago in September. So, you know, I work in mental health, but my my company out in California, you know, we're primarily based in urban areas. And when Mental Health Month, which is, you know, honored in May, was coming due, you know, we were doing all these events. And at the CSRHA, I'm thinking, you know, it's we've been doing this podcast for a few years now, but we had never really talked mental health. We'd done some conversation about substance use disorder and, you know, access and telehealth that kind of all touch on it a little bit. But, you know, when I was trying to look up who I could partner with, who I could reach out to, to have a conversation, uh, Rural Minds popped up. And I'm, you know, I'm glad that I did and that we're able to make this connection. And as we were talking earlier this week, mental health doesn't it doesn't take a break outside of May. Like it, it's an ongoing issue, and it it deserves to be addressed. You were talking about stigma, you know, around it, and and trying to get help. 
But even I think even if people were more comfortable talking about it, there's a big issue in rural healthcare in general that affects mental health, and that's access. So, you know, what are some of the challenges that you see in your work that rural communities are facing when it comes to mental health? Yes. Well, again, thank you for reaching out to us. I'm very happy you found us. Access is a big issue that we're all focused on currently. There is a shortage of mental health providers in rural areas. As a matter of fact, 65% of rural counties don't have a psychiatrist. Nearly 50% of the counties that are considered rural don't even have a psychologist. I know personally, when I moved back to the farm a year and a half ago, I had to wait eight months to even get in to see a primary care physician. They are hard to come by. So having the access to the care that people need is critical. Now, telehealth has been a big plus for everyone. And of course, a big part of that came about because of COVID. And when the doctor's offices all closed, most of us had no choice but to have a conversation like we're having right now about our health over Zoom or phone or whatever. But as I I like to remind people, telehealth is not a panacea for people in rural America either, because nearly 30% of families in rural areas still do not have any internet access. And then another large percentage have inadequate access. So while it has helped many people, it still isn't where it needs to be. Now, the new farm bill, as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware, is addressing this. And it's something that Secretary Buttigieg has been looking at as part of the infrastructure bill in Washington. But we still have a lot of work to do in order to make the broadband issue work for everyone, especially those people that we advocate for. The other thing that I always like to remind people is that even if there is a healthcare provider in an area and someone decides to go and see that individual, Everyone knows everyone's business in small towns. That's both a blessing. Absolutely. (laughs) And so if a person decides to go to the local mental health provider and his pickup truck is parked in front of that office, the word starts to spread like wildfire. So there are many people who are very hesitant to go to a local doctor and, and may go across a state line where I'm farming in upstate New York. We're not far from the Pennsylvania border. And I would believe that many people, probably including my nephew, if he had sought help, would have decided to go into Pennsylvania where maybe people didn't know him, didn't know my family, and didn't know the vehicle he was driving. So the confidentiality access is is very important as well. But the thing that we are attempting to do through Rural Minds, through some of our partnerships with the National Grange, for example, is to take help where people are already congregating. 
And that may be their local Grange Hall. It may be the local church. It may be the local FFA or 4-H or even the school. And people are already congregating for both um, educational purposes and for social purposes in some of these venues that I've already mentioned. That's where they trust the information that is given to them. So rather than trying to get them to go someplace that might seem foreign, we're trying to take the training and take the assistance to them where they're already going. And that's part of this uh, Growing Hope Together program we have, which is a grassroots initiative, again, with the National Grange. The Grange is very strong in California. The National Grange annual meeting was held in Reno last year, and a number of people from especially Northern California drove over, and I had the opportunity to meet them. And so our partnership with the Grange is continuing to grow. The Grange is located in 1,500 communities across this country, primarily in rural areas. And so that partnership is already proving to be very beneficial because we know that that's where people are going in rural areas like where I am. And so taking the message of hope and even taking therapists to those organizations is proving to be very helpful for those people that we're trying to reach. Yeah. I mean, meeting people where they are is a huge part of, you know, because we can't do one size fits all healthcare. You know, we were, we were talking about that earlier. California has huge ag communities and you would think that they would, oh, but this works in upstate New York. Let's Let's apply this to, you know, West Texas. Let's apply this to Central California. And, you know, really, it doesn't always work that way. And I think it's great that you're able to use, you know, the local chapters of national organizations who are in touch with the communities that are there, where people are already meeting, and use those folks to help kind of get the word out, right? These trusted partners whether they're actually, you know, community health workers or just trusted members of the community by empowering them with the information that they need to share and connecting folks with resources it can make a huge difference. You know, I was on the Kaiser Family Foundation website earlier this week because I used to do do the HIPSA scores, you know, the health professional shortage area scores and I was looking at mental health Right now, the Kaiser Family Foundation is showing California at meeting just under 25% of its mental health workforce need. And to meet the overall need, we'd need to hire about 650 providers in mental health. And I don't know if you're hiding 650 providers somewhere out on the farm. I know that, that they're not just under rocks waiting to show up, you know, so... A huge part of that is we've got to increase the workforce. We've got to get the workforce interested in rural areas, you know, and I think grassroots is really a great way to kind of get that started, you know, building, building up that culture from within the rural areas. So I'm looking on the ruralminds.org website and I see at the top, you've got some different programs 
that you all are doing. You talked about you know the the first one, but I see you also have a bunch of webinars available. Yes, for folks, you know, and these are these live webinars or are these kind of at your own pace when you're ready. They're actually both. So they are live webinars, but they're also then archived on the website. So we just did one week with some of our partners, and that was the most heavily attended of all. Each one seems to be like a rolling stone, gathering um, a number of new listeners and, and viewers because it's on Zoom. And so we have had a variety of topics, and we normally bring in some of our partners. This past one last week was on the value of nutrition and exercise and sleep. And it was a partnership with NAMI and MHA and the National Sleep Foundation. So all three very large organizations that want to increase their footprint in rural areas. And they're doing that by partnering with us. So I highly recommend that people spend some time on ruralminds.org and check out some of the webinars we've done since we launched the organization 20 months ago. I still refer to some of them myself, and I I think people will find them highly beneficial. Yeah, that's that's tremendous. I know, you know, we were talking about substance use disorder and a lot of people think that's the big thing to talk about, but sleep, nutrition, I mean, these are these are issues that are big in rural health in general and they all are contributing factors. So, that's lovely that you are addressing that through webinars both live and recorded. We talked a little bit about COVID-19 and how that impacted mental health, you know, a little bit in the sense that it gave us access to telehealth resources that maybe weren't available. One of the positive things that has come out of the public health emergency is that a lot of those temporary provisions that went into place uh, for telehealth in rural areas are sticking around permanently. But aside from that, you know, are there any other elements of COVID-19 that particularly impacted rural mental health that you can think of and how, how did rural minds kind of help address those needs? Well, we launched our organization right in the middle of the pandemic. It was 2021. So COVID-19 was still raging and rearing its ugly head at that point. And growing up in rural America on a farm, I knew that people were already feeling isolated even before COVID Uh restrictions hit. And even in an area like where I farm, which this time of year is a resort area, so we have a big influx of people in the summer. But once those summer people go, it gets a little lonely up here. (laughs) And there are many fewer outlets for people whether it is, you know, going to a play or going to some kind of educational seminar that might be done at the local community college. So once COVID hit and those limited opportunities were taken away from people, we really started to see the impact of mental illness and substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, 
skyrocketed in rural areas yeah. because people stayed home and they they drank. And that wasn't just in rural areas, but at least in urban areas, people could still get out and, you know, walk to their neighbors or walk to a local bookstore that might have had limited access. But if you're in a rural area, like where I'm talking to you, I'm looking out the windows of my office right now. I have no neighbors. I have nowhere to walk to. <laughs> and so right. I, I think that, you know, schools weren't in session. So the Friday night football games weren't a possibility. Young people weren't able to go to their proms and all the other things that we all grew up with that are a rite of passage. So I would dare to guess that COVID had a disproportionate impact on people in rural areas that we're still dealing with. I mean, life is starting to get back somewhat to normal now, thankfully, but many people missed out on a lot of things, especially young people. And, you know, that's that's a real shame and something that we're keeping an eye on. The latest statistic I saw is that within the last year, one out of every five high school students seriously contemplated suicide. That's 20% of high school students in this mm. country have considered suicide. And you've got to believe that part of that has been because of the impact COVID had and the fact that they missed out on so many things. And they're just just lost and they're not quite sure where to turn. And so they're considering some very dangerous and very tragic options. Yeah, that's that's a sobering number there. You know, one in five. Yep. So in the in the nearly two years that rural mines has been around, are there any particular you know, successes or, or things that surprised you in the work that you've been able to do? Well, the thing that makes us the most proud and encouraged every day, Scott, is the fact that we see people starting to talk about this now. Because as I like to tell people as I travel around the country as a national organization, that the healing begins when you're able to tell your story, when you have someone you can confide in or, or speak openly about the journey you've been on. Um, not a day goes by that I don't hear from someone who has found me either through our website or through some of the meetings that we do who haven't necessarily felt comfortable sharing their own journey with anyone. But I'm, I'm honored that they feel comfortable with me because I talk very openly about my family's journey, which doesn't mm -hmm. only include my nephew, but a number of other family members who have also struggled with mental illness challenges over the years. And the healing begins when you're able to verbalize what you've been hiding. And, you know, we openly talk about cancer now, thankfully. We openly talk about cardiovascular disease. We openly talk about diabetes and now most recently COVID. But our society in rural America in particular still finds talking about various forms of mental illness 
very difficult. And they're ashamed of it because it is not necessarily considered an illness, which it is. There's a reason it's called mental illness. But unfortunately, it's still looked upon as a character weakness or a personality flaw or something that you should be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just get over. Well, if you have breast cancer or a heart disease, you can't just snap your fingers and will it away. You have to seek medical intervention. And the same certainly applies to the many various forms of mental illness that we're confronted with each and every day. So, So just getting back to your question, we're very pleased that we see almost a movement of people now telling their story. And inevitably, when I, I speak to groups like I do regularly, I will have people, and many times they're the young people in the audience, by the way, who very politely will raise their hand and start telling their story in front of, you know, in some cases, hundreds of other people. And all of a sudden, a light bulb goes on. And while some of the adults may not feel as comfortable doing that in a big forum like that, they will follow me out of that meeting room, out of that ballroom, wherever we're talking, Uh and will pull me aside and say, hey, I, I appreciate you sharing your family's story. My mother struggled. I lost my grandmother to mental illness. And the stories are just so prevalent. But just like what I do and like what I'm doing with you today, every time I tell the story about my family, even though at times it feels like ripping the Band-Aid off, I can feel that I'm healing a little more each time I tell that story. Storytelling is very powerful. And just getting it out and telling it to one person, all it takes is one person. We don't advocate people standing up in front of you know, legions of people, it'd be great if we had more public speakers that are willing to tell their story. But by just telling one other person, it's the multiplier effect that that person then will probably hopefully tell their story to someone else and will, you know, eventually reach the people that we're advocating for in these small towns and on farms and mining villages across this country. Yeah, the the uh, it's okay to not be okay message. I think you know we're we're seeing kind of a generational impact. I would say you know I've got a basically teenager, and I know when they're with their friends, they talk about this stuff not always like in a making fun of it, but like in a it's very lighthearted, and the understanding that they have is just streets ahead of where I was, you know, 30 years ago, let alone, you know, where my parents were 30 years before that. Like it's, it's impressive to see the vocabulary that they've developed. And I'm very hopeful that that carries forward where even, even if you're not looking at kind of the pharmacology side, but just therapy, just as you were saying, being able to talk about it can have such a profound impact. I know that the the middle schools around here all have a dedicated full-time therapist mm-hmm. and that has made such a huge impact just being able to 
kind of nip something in the bud, like instead of having a rough day and then taking it home and festering over the weekend, just to be able to pop in and say, I need five minutes to, to talk about this. Is this a big deal? Is this not a big deal? And if it is, what are some strategies I can use? And I think that is so, so wonderful. I'm glad that you're seeing more engagement and more of an impact when you have these events, you know, it's almost two years and you're already having such growth. My question is then what are you looking for in the next two years and the next 20 months? You know, what are, what are your plans with rural minds? Well, we continue to hope that the movement that has started will grow and accelerate. So Again, as a new organization, we still have a lot of work to do. And every day when I start my day, I realize that this is a huge issue that's going to take all of us to turn around because it's taken generations to get us to where we're at right now. And hopefully it won't take another several generations to get us back to where we need to be But we need to normalize this conversation. We need to put a face on this illness. And as you said, rightfully so, the young people are the hope. They are willing to talk about a lot of topics, whether it's gender identity or, you know, the war in Ukraine or things that our generation steers away from or we whisper about in the comfort of our homes. And so the young people of this country, and hence the reason we're working with the youth of the National Grange and have started conversations with the FFA and 4-H, they will be the ones that ultimately will allow this to come out of the shadows and be dealt with in the manner it deserves. So we're hoping in the coming months and years to do more with the youth programming. As I said, we've had some initial successes and certainly a lot of really great conversations, but we need to do much more because, again, I shared with you a couple minutes ago about the growing incidence of suicide ideation amongst high school students. So that's very concerning. One thing that we're especially happy about and very proud of, and we're hoping to continue to grow as well, is a conversation that started 20 months ago between healthcare companies, including companies that manufacture and research products for anxiety, for depression, for bipolar disorder, for schizophrenia, with the agricultural community. It was shocking to me after having grown up on a farm and worked in agriculture, but then after also working in the healthcare space for many years, that people that represent agricultural companies, such as John Deere, such as Land of Lakes, FMC, many of the large agricultural companies had never really had a conversation with companies like Pfizer and Merck and Johnson & Johnson and companies that for generations have manufactured medicines for people that need some type of medical intervention. So at our very first partnership council meeting, where we had people representing pharmaceutical companies and agricultural companies, it was like 
a love fest. And people that had never met before understood that companies from another sector and very powerful sectors in our industry in the United States were trying to do the same thing they were trying to do. Because let's face it, some grower in California who may need a new combine or a new tractor may also be living with bipolar disorder. So they may be on a medicine that one of these companies is making while they're also working with these agricultural companies. So we now have brought both of these industries together. We meet four times a year. Right now, we're still meeting virtually, but we're hoping to start meeting in person eventually. And just the sharing of ideas and the greater understanding that is coming out of these conversations has been something that we think will take this work and this conversation to a much higher level than it would have been if we had just been focused on one part of this discussion or another industry. So we're, we're very proud of that and we're hoping to accelerate that work in the coming months and years as well. We're all about collaboration and partnership. So when we decided that there was a need for advocates for mental illness in rural America, we knew it was a race against time because of what was happening in this country. So rather than starting from scratch and coming up with new training and new resources, our goal is to get what already exists, and in many cases, what's mm-hmm. already existed for many years, into the hands of the 46 million people that live in rural areas who may not have understood that help has been there, but they just need to know where to go to find it. And that's one of the reasons that our website, ruralminds.org, has such a prominent um, section in there where we've compiled a lot of these resources and a lot of the training um, by category. So it's easy for people that go to our website to find something that might be of use and something that's helpful to them. I just recently took a course, which I highly recommend to people, called First Aid for Mental Illness. And, you know, many of us have gone to first aid classes to learn how to do CPR, to learn how to put a tape on an arm. But not many people have gone to a first aid class specifically to understand the nuances of mental illness and suicide. This course, which is pretty intense, teaches you to even ask the question of somebody who you're concerned may be suicidal. And that question is, are you considering suicide? Are you contemplating dying by suicide? And the first time or two you ask that question, it's difficult. It's hard for those words to come out. But that is precisely what they teach you to do in this mental health first aid class is to ask those difficult questions. So that's something that you can take online. I happened to take it at the local community college that was taught by the Cooperative Extension Service here in the county that I farm in. But there are online courses now, and we're now working to, as I I like to call it, ruralize some of these courses so that some of the examples (laughs) they use 
are about a farmer who's trying to get his crops in and it continually rains or someone who's got all these cattle he wants to sell, but yet the price of, of cattle is depressed. So right now what exists isn't necessarily something that is geared towards rural audiences, but it's a huge step forward. And I, I'm really hopeful that people take advantage of it. And eventually we're hoping that we will have a version of the class that will be much more focused on people that live in rural areas in the U.S. That I had not even considered the existence of a course like that. So thank you yep. for, for sharing that with me. I will definitely have to go look that up. You know, I'll say you, you have a lot of resources available on your site and you, you guys are a nonprofit. What is a way that our listeners can, you know, support the work that you're doing either directly with their, with their minds and hands or with their wallets? How, how can they help support rural minds and improve rural health in, you know, from the mental health angle? Well, thank you for asking that question. As I said a few minutes ago, it's going to take all of us to help turn this around. So we're looking for advocates. We're looking for people that are willing to tell their story, people that are willing to, whether it's speak at a local meeting or even write an op-ed for the local newspaper. We're always looking for fellow messengers that can help us do the work that we're doing, both on a national level as well as on a grassroots level. We're also looking for people that can help sensitize their community about what we're dealing with. Unfortunately, people still make fun of people living with mental illness you know, and we've, we've got to get beyond that. We don't make fun of people who live with cancer. We don't make fun, I hope, of people that have had a heart attack. But we still talk about the crazy woman down the street, the insane person who's part of my church. And so I am hoping that people will start to stop that behavior and get people accustomed to using different types of language because words matter. You know, when we talk about suicide, you know, up until recently, people talked about committing suicide. Well, committing anything sounds like a crime. And so we always try to instill in people, it's someone who is contemplating suicide or they've died by suicide or they've completed suicide. But suicide used to be a crime. That's where the term committing suicide came from. It was a crime. But now we're living in different times, thankfully. But we need to make sure that people are using terminology that is not only resonating with people, but it's making them feel more comfortable about telling their story. Obviously, we're always looking for donors because we are a not-for-profit and we launched during COVID, which was a time that many mm -hmm. not for Profits were really hurting from a financial standpoint. Every dollar helps, and we're fortunate that we we have a number of donors. Some are giving us five dollars, which we are grateful for. Others may be giving greater donations. We're looking for people that 
might work for a corporation that has a matching grants program where if they give $10, the company they work for gives $10. And we've had some people who have designated Rural Minds as the group that they want to donate their matching funds to. We're also, you know, talking to people about estate planning. And, you know, I'm at the point in my life where I've just had my will redone and, you know, I'm looking at where I can make the most impact after I'm gone. And so we we have been talking a bit about that, that that's an area where people can help us as well. I, I encourage people to reach out to us on our website. There's a contact portion of the website where people can reach out to us. Also, I encourage people to reach out to me directly. And, you know, my my email is very simple. It's Jeff, J-E-F-F, at ruralminds.org. And I, I look forward to hearing from people that may want to get involved with us. Again, we're a national organization, but we're very grassroots driven And there's so much Mm -hmm. that needs to be done in the state of California, because as you said earlier, Scott, you're a huge state with a very, very important agricultural community and industry. And so we really want to do even more in California than maybe what we've been able to do up until this point in time. So the bottom line is there's plenty of ways to get involved and We just look forward to hearing from people who may have a heart for doing this kind of work, who may want to join us on this journey. There's lots of good work to do. Jeff, thank you so much for having the time to come on and, you know, share your story and share information about Rural Minds. I would look forward to sharing this episode with our listeners. And, you know, that call to action is, is so critical. Thank you again. And I hope that you have a lovely summer and you know, we'll be in touch. Thank you very much, Scott. We appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today. This is Rural Health is the official podcast of the California State Rural Health Association and is made possible by the generosity of our members. Our producer is Noelia Sanchez at Noteworthy Lab. To learn more about the CSRHA or to become a member, visit us at csrha.org. If you have a suggestion for a future guest or topic for the show, email us at podcast at csrj.org. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, please be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast and to follow us on Twitter at CSRJ Podcast. Thank you so much for your continued support of the California State Rural Health Association.